Welcome back. back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. In today's episode, we head to the bridge of the interdecisional spaceship for a look back at our journey in 2021. Today, we're ranking each and every game we covered on the show this year. And by the end of today's episode, you'll know our definitive ranking for all 30 games. We'll view the community's top 10 games, and you'll learn what Jake and I's number one decision space of the year is. I am so excited. This is going to be awesome. I absolutely can't wait to get into this discussion. We've charted a path between so many games this year. So there's 30 games on the list. And I, you know, wanted to take an opportunity. Sometimes we we have people come to us and say, how many times do you play these games, Jake and Brendan? Have you really explored these decision spaces like you say you have? So I did a little bit of, of looking back at Yukata, at Board Game Arena, and at just all the other apps and just physical plays that I did of these games in the year. And you did the same. And I'd love for listeners to get a number in your mind of what you think we might have played. So 30 games that we covered on the show. Between those 30 games, cumulatively, how many times do you think Jake and I have played these games? Okay, do you have the number? Great. I played all 30 games, cumulatively, over 750 times in 2021. And Jake? That, that is insane. Uh, I have played 400 times across all of these games, which is a big number. I think I think yours might be a little bit distorted by getting pretty, pretty deep into Star Realms, if I remember correctly. I think that I am counting about 150 or 200 Star <laughs> Realm plays of this. I didn't include all of the plays of Keyforge, which I think would have pushed me over 1,000. Or, you know, I threw in like 10 for Magic the Gathering, but I got pretty into Magic the Gathering at one point when we covered it on the show this year too but even taking those out still over 500 your number over 400 is pretty pretty mind-boggling as well that's a lot of plays yeah not bad for the resident slacker uh <laughs> slacker in chief here in the interdecisional spaceship hq one thing that i think is going to be awesome about the show if this is the first time you're hearing about us uh, if you're a long-time listener, I hope you're sharing this episode widely. We really want this to be a great entry point for people to Decision Space because we'll be touching on all of these games. And then each one of these covered, we have an episode about that we have been really intentional in creating these episodes uh, that they will stay evergreen, right? There's no current events and news. It's a deep dive into the decision space that more or less will remain the same over the course of the lifespan of the game. So, you know, if, if you want to hear a more nuanced version of any of these takes we've covered today, and some of these takes may have changed since we recorded the episode, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to those episodes. So just before we get into this top 30, we're going to go 30 all the way up to number one. Jake and I'll give a little introduction of the game, some of its the crunchiest decisions that we we love about it, a little characterization of its decision space. Um, and then we'll get into the community rankings, then our top games. Uh, but we'll cover each game one by one. But we wanted to also take a moment and look at who the most covered designers were for us this year. Did anyone appear two times or even three times? Uh, so at Quick Look, we covered two Vladimir Suchi games this year, two Thomas Lehman games, two Richard Garfield games, three Bruno Cathala games, and three games by the one and only Stefan Feld. I had to let Jake say the Stefan Feld one because he's the big Stefan Feld fan. You know that puts a grin on my face every time I say that. 
Between Steffenfeld and Bruno Cavella too, we <laughs> we did a quick average. I will reveal Steffenfeld came out on top out of those two, but the highest rated overall, well, you'll have to wait and see if you can guess because I don't want to give too much away about the rankings. This year and every year, Steffenfeld, designer of the year. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have any, as we're sitting here on the bridge of the interdecisional spaceship, looking back at all of our charted paths through these decision spaces. Any thoughts before we get into it, Jake? There are so many highlights. I think, to me, when I look back at this year, I am really, really proud of our output on the show. I think we have created something that does add value uh, to people's life. And, and it's been so incredibly rewarding to have yeah. discussions with people in our Discord, just to see the number of listeners every week. Uh, grow from when we first started i think we had literally you know 15 downloads the first week and now we're averaging something like 800 downloads a week we we get like 300 or 400 downloads on on every new episode we put out um so i mean that is rewarding and i think coupled with that you've seen i've seen just growth in the show we've tried mm-hmm. out new things done different things uh and and have constantly worked to kind of improve and put out a better product for the people that do enjoy this kind of uh, super nerdy, uh, super deep dive, maybe a little too academic at times discussions into these games. It's been really cool. Yeah, I agree. I think when we set out on this project, I I was wondering, is this going to change the way I think about games? You know, we had this, this mission of trying to tackle games decision space first. And I think a lot of podcasts kind of do that, but they do it a little bit from a different angle than we do. And I'm just really thrilled that through our conversations, and like you mentioned, Jake, conversations with the the whole decision space community. And if you ever listen to an episode of decision space, so that's that's you right now, uh, you're a part of that community. I'm just so thankful you're here. But it really has changed the way I think about games, the way I think about how the decision space of games changes throughout, how I think about the pacing of games, um, how I think about the shape of games overall, and how games make us feel the way they feel. I think I have a better sense for how uh, game designers put the mechanics of their games together to offer your brain the sort of tricks and little, I don't know, paths through their spaces differently. And I'm really thankful for that. And I'm even more excited for what's going to happen in 2021 with that. But I think let's get into it with the number 30 game. Uh, So as we do this, Jake and I are going to take, we're going to allow the person who rated the game higher. What we did is we each did a pub meeple ranking, which is a website that you can go to where you can gives you a choice between uh, two things on a list that you submitted, and then you pick which one you like more. So Jake and I did that for all 30 games. I think I approached it for the most part as which game I was would be more excited to have the opportunity to play, given ideal circumstances. I do think it's worth mentioning that the way Pub Meeple presents this ranking tool is you just see two games randomly paired with each other. You select which one uh, you want to win that matchup. So I took that as which game would I prefer to play right now? Uh, And I think that's a very different consideration to when we're trying to objectively provide a rating for these games. Um, So I did find in my list that very frequently I would be rating, I would be selecting a game to win a matchup. That was actually a game I had rated lower in 
the episode. So I just think it's it's really interesting. And also just the way pairings come up, you might get slightly different lists each time you do it, which makes it a really fun and dynamic ranking tool. And with that said, if you're a fan of classic two-player card games, you might be surprised to hear that the number 30 game on our list this year is Jaipur. Jaipur is a set collection, set collecting card game for two players in which you're trying to collect goods of these six different types and basically build, you have this tension between collecting large sets and trading in goods quickly, beating your opponent to higher scoring victory uh, point chips for that type. Uh, Jaipur is a game that I'm really thankful to have played, but it's not a game I feel the drive to go back to as much as I once did. You know, I think I've probably played Jaipur 20, 30 times, and it's one of the games where 20, 30 times is enough. Yeah, all I have to say about this was it, it's kind of boring. Like, it, it's it's a fine game. It works well. I can respect the design, but I just did not find it exciting to play, uh, and I don't find it exciting, the prospect of revisiting. So... We should say that this was rated uh, as my 29th game out of 30 and also Brendan's 29 out of 30. So it was actually a crossover for us. And that cumulative ranking brought it to number 30 on our list. Yep. I, I wish Jerry, I think Jerry just needs to ask a little bit more of its players. At least I think that's why it was a miss for both of us. But this next game, Jake, you ranked it higher. So, oh, okay. so, so you're up. Yeah, so I get to present... Our 29th best game we covered this year is, oh boy, people are going to be really mad, Terraforming Mars. Hold up, I got to put my seatbelt on. (laughs) So this was Brendan's 28th game out of 30 on his list, and my 26th game out of 30. I think it's a game I rated as an 8, so a game that I was still impressed by when we covered it. It's sort of a, a tableau engine building type of game where you're actually get to terraform uh the planet mars in front of you it's an incredibly thematic experience why did it lose so many matchups for me i think just because of uh the length to play the complexity of playing it it's a game i own um sits on myself and it's just one that I rarely want to bring out because of that. I feel like I can get a more satisfying of a game experience in less playtime and less complexity in some of the other games on this list. I think for me, one of the things that really holds Terraforming Mars back ultimately, and we talked about this a lot in the episode, is the lack of interaction on the board. For a game that builds itself as Terraforming Mars, that element of the gameplay and the decision space feels the least impactful. And I think that disconnect leaves me wanting a game where I feel like I'm terraforming Mars. And instead I feel like I'm kind of running a corporation, but not really. I'm kind of just, you know, moving cubes that represent energy and steel or titanium or iron, I can't even remember, around my board. I don't love the way that the decisions around the game end and the Uh, do one or two things on your turn works because I don't think even the one or two things is generally a real decision. I think it's just always optimal to do one until you do two. uh, And and like, I I don't know. There's so many things about this game that I totally get why there are meaty decisions waiting in here that people love. Uh, But for me, there's other games that I'd rather dive deeper into and leave Mars in the rearview mirror. It's a polarizing one. Lots of people love it. And unfortunately, for those of you who love this game, it seems as though we're a little bit closer to the negative side of the polarization. 
So let's move on to our 28th best game covered this year. Uh, Once again, I had ranked this game higher than Brendan, and that game is Thomas Lehman's Res Arcana. Uh, Another tableau building game, this one uh, more explicitly that, a race game where you are using all kinds of arcane items and spells and places of power and artifact to try and race to 10 points. Uh, it's, it's very commonly described as, you know, an engine builder game where you're not really be- building an engine as much as you're trying to slap one together with duct tape and just get it over the finish line. So this was Brendan's 30th game, his least favorite, at least according to this pub meeple ranking system that we covered this year. And it was my 23rd favorite. This is a game that it matches it's at the bottom of the list for me for the same reason as terraforming mars which is that i really really wanted to enjoy this game um i my expectations were very high for it i the theme actually really works for me despite it not being a super thematic game and for whatever reason when we started playing i felt so rigid in terms of being forced to play the hand that i was dealt or forced to play the hand that i has had drafted and it was more about seeing how the consequences of the early decisions played out than about pivoting and making new decisions that it just made me feel like I wanted to pursue uh, some different engines to build. Yeah, it's 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 the game perhaps of all of these that we had the most criticism for in our ap- yeah. episode. We really get into it. And I think all of those things still hold true for me. But at the same time, I still have fun, even if it's very procedural, even if I'm just playing the cards I was dealt, I still have fun kind of going through those steps, completing the process uh, and and making the most of it, even if it does feel quite similar game to game. So our number 27 game is another one that some people might describe as procedural to them. And that decision space, that game is Donald X. Vaccarino's Kingdom Builder. This was my number 18 game. And Jake's number 30, the last game on his list. So Jake, what do you have to say for yourself doing this lovely lovely game so dirty? Essentially, it is a game that I just didn't find fun. Mm. I, there are decisions to make, but there are a scant few decisions and the rest is sort of just watching things unfold. And I feel like a great comparison to Raise Our Camp, we just, in either game, you're, you're watching things unfold. I think more interesting and dynamic things are happening in Raise Arcana, where Kingdom Builder, mm. very similar. You're watching things unfold, but like the most exciting and pivotal thing is like, and now I gain one point, and now I gain one point, and now I gain one point. That's so interesting. I feel like so many more interesting things are happening in Kingdom Builder, and I have my agency, my ability to fight back against the systems of the game. That puzzle, I think, is my favorite aspect of it. It also, I will say, so Kingdom Builder is a chaining game in which you are placing uh, little houses on a large board of a bunch of different types of terrain, and its defining characteristic is its restriction. Every turn you draw a card, it tells you the terrain that you have to place on, uh, and you as a player, your whole game is trying to figure out how to break those rules. And I think for me, the fun of trying to uh, fight against the system feels a little bit like taming the wind. Uh, I can only tame the wind so much before I become tired of the activity of trying to tame the wind and realize that it's a little bit futile and I need a little bit more agency in my decision spaces. But I think it's fun. I will admit I'm partial to these sort of chaining games. I love 
Blue Lagoon, uh, uh, Reiner Knizia chaining game. So I, I really wanted to like Kingdom Builder. Uh, and it's a game that made me realize if the decision space had 50% more agency, I probably would like it 100% more. Moving on to our number 26th game, and that is Villagers, another tableau building game. Brendan, do we hate tableau building games? <laughs> I don't think we do, but maybe we do. <laughs> <sighs> so, so Villagers is Brendan's 26th favorite game and my 22nd favorite game that we covered this year. For incredibly astute listeners, you may recognize that the cumulative ranking between Villagers and Kingdom Builder is the same. It's averages mm-hmm. out to 24. Uh, what we determined for this list is whichever got whichever game had the single lower lowest rating uh, would be below on the list. So what Villagers is is a very adorable, quite simple tableau building game where you're drafting little villager cards and you're slotting them into your town square. Very very straightforward. Uh, You're getting cards that allow you to have extra build actions so that you can build more villagers. You've got cards that give you food icons so that you can draft more cards on your turn. And then different scoring conditions on the cards as well. Some giving you points just for having them. Others giving you points based on other villagers you have in your town. And I think out of all the games we've covered so far... The first one that I actually genuinely enjoy and will continue to play and seek mm. out playing. It's nice. I mean, I do think while it really struggles at four players, it's a it's a great game that works well at two players. And I'm even growing in my appreciation for it at three players. I think it can work quite well there too. Villagers is a game I played a ton of this year. Every once in a while with games that we covered, I would get particularly obsessed and really dive deep. And I think I did that because I wanted to like Villagers more than I did, which I'm realizing is a trend of a lot of these games that I've rated a little bit lower. We The title of the Villagers episode is Are These Combos? And I think that the gist of that is why I find Villagers a little bit frustrating in terms of the decision space and made me realize that part of what makes decision spaces rewarding is when things feel organic and emergent and not stilted. And the combos in Villagers, the the they don't even call them combos. I think they call them building chains, feel so rigid and stilted that I think the more I played it, the more I felt frustrated that I was told, this is how you will have fun. You will collect this card and then this card and then this card and you will get mini points for it and that will be great. And it turned out after enough plays, it wasn't great. At least not that great. But the more I play it, the more I think less in terms of like combos, which these are not, and more in terms of finding those little efficiencies, thinking about the odds that I'll be able to complete a certain chain based on what I have, what my opponent has, and what might be available in the deck. And I think there are genuinely fun moments to be had there. More of this discussion in that episode, if you'd like to seek it out. So the next game, this is a, uh, I'm so surprised actually that this game ended up at number 25 on Jake and I's list. This is a deck building game. It's a pure deck building game. It's one of the originals, one of the, the grandfathers, and that game is Star Realms. This was my number 20 game and Jake's number 27 game. So Paul, uh, blame Jake that this game is sitting at 25 where it does not deserve to be. Paul Solomon, friend of the show and a huge, huge Star Realms fan. I think that Star Realms is a game in which you're collecting cards potentially of four different factions, and you're trying to be the first to get your opponent's uh, life total down to zero. You're trying to basically, the tension of the decision space is, 
how long is the game going to last? Am I playing for the Ed game? Am I trying to rush my opponent down? And how many of these different factions that I'm getting synergies for, if I add uh, a volume of one color to my deck, I'm going to get a ton more synergies, but I'm limiting myself in my potential buys and my mechanics. And the decisions there for me are, are really interesting. But Star Realms is a game with a lot of luck. Uh, which is not to criticize it. It's to say that it offers a unique challenge in which the best players will always win, but they'll win, you know, 65% of the time rather than a little bit higher. And that can be a ton of fun. It's why I played it 250 times. Uh, but I don't know that it's a game that I need to return to. Jake, why is this 27 on your list? My buddy Paul is going to be so mad at me. Yeah, you're done. <laughs> I'm done. Uh, <laughs> I think the reason it's so low for me is comes down, of course, in, in all these cases. It's just personal preference. I think the game works well. It can sustain a competitive scene of passionate players that play this as, as a lifestyle game. And that is fantastic. But for me, I don't prefer deck-building games mm. with the type of market that is constantly changing as much. I think there are some really interesting ways to innovate on that, and maybe in games we'll cover later. Uh, that kind of fixes the problem of that just feeling like very random and chaotic. The other issue I had with the game is I, I feel like it has this issue where your deck never gets to a point where it's in my the number of plays I played. It never gets to a point where I'm like really happy with my deck. Mm, right, I've still got like uh, bad cards in there or inefficient cards and. I, I just so I just don't feel as satisfied at the end of a game, win or lose, than I might in another uh, deck builder where I feel like I've really like accomplished something with my deck itself in addition to the goal in the game. The other funny thing with this one is we called this episode Why Four Factions, and I talked quite a bit in the episode about why I think like a deck that has just four factions is just not a great number it doesn't really make a lot of sense it'd be better with five or three and then somebody commented in the discord like jake have you ever heard of a standard deck of playing cards it's just like <laughs> oh no <laughs> i didn't think about that oh. a pretty good burn and Body. if you want to get in on these burns get in on discussion definitely do join us in our discord where we're always talking about games after each episode and in between which we always link down in the description of our podcast. We'd love to have you in there with us. So this next game, Praga Kaput Regni, a Vladimir Suchi game. This game is much lower at 24 than I would expect if you told me the designer, because I really enjoy Vladimir Suchi's other game that we covered this year. Praga Kaput Regni uh, was just not the decision space for me. I, I don't know. I, I felt the game was a little plotting. It was a little frustrating and a little samey, despite what so many people who really adore the game say is the thing that draws them to it most, which is that you can never solve the question of any one game of Fraga quite the same, uh, which is true, but I think I just don't like the question that it asks generally. I think this is a very fun game. Uh, we covered a ton of great games and classic games on this episode, so keep that in mind when we're talking about the top 30 games we're covered we sought out to play games that we were excited about exclusively. I do agree with your main criticism, Brendan, that it can feel kind of samey, but at the same time, on each and any given turn in a game of Praga, you're still making an interesting decision, you know, even if the heuristics you're using to make that decision uh, are, are, are kind of like written in stone. It's one I've continued to play on Yukata after, and even though 
that criticism exists, the variability might not be as high as some others. As long as the core game is fun, like the question of variability, I think is loses a lot of importance. And, and I find the core game very enjoyable. Moving right along, number 23 is a classic board game. Maybe the classic board game. And it is Carcassonne. Brendan's number 22 game and my number 19 game. If you're unfamiliar with Carcassonne, this is a tile laying game where on your turn you'll draw just one tile and slot it in so that it matches up with the scenery uh, features on other tiles already played. Uh, you can drop a meeple onto a feature to hopefully score some points when that feature is uh, completed. And it's truly just like a delightful game to play. Uh, it, it it makes people do funny things because it's just so satisfying to complete a large feature that sometimes if, if you're not playing with incredibly cutthroat people, people just can't even help it. Like their their brain is just telling them like, I have to finish. I, I know I'm playing a game, but it's more important to me right now to plop in this perfect puzzle piece into a perfect puzzle hole. Um, and And I think like there's something really special about that. I really like Carcassonne. It's a game that I enjoy more than the decisions it offers. And I think a big part of that is what Jake is saying. The The act of playing Carcassonne is just a ton of fun. Um, I think that putting down uh, pieces on the board like farmers or the shorter turn, just putting them on roads to try to complete smaller features or even when you finish a big city, it's all just fun. The decisions are fine. Uh, I would Carcassonne's a game that I would sometimes turned down, but mostly love to play. So that's why it was my number 22 game on this list. And if you want to go back to that episode, we talk a lot about the Hunters and Gatherers variant specifically. So I think that is a lot of what I have in mind too when I talk about this game. I actually own the original Carcassonne, but I think the Hunters and Gatherer variant really adds a lot. It's just a better experience overall. Um, So... If, if you're interested in kind of what that offers and you're familiar with the other one, go back and check out that episode. I think uh, that you'll enjoy it. So moving on, number 22. We're, we're making our way through, Brendan. And this one is Raiders of the North Sea by Garphill Games or Garfield Games, but not Garfield Games. It is Brendan's number 24 best game we covered this year. And my number 16 bring us to a nice average of 20. So Raiders of the North Sea is a worker placement game with the amazing and innovative mechanic of playing one worker to take an action and picking up a different worker to take an action. And it's really incredible uh, what rich decision space is offered by that simple uh, mechanism. I think that's the thing I love most about this game is the efficiency of the design space, the rules overhead of that, to what it enables in in the decision space of the game. Um, it's it's really wonderful. It's a great one to teach people, just because of it, it feels like a just right marriage of complexity to of mechanisms to theme to get somebody into like their first real strategy game beyond Gateway. So for me, that's kind of my go to game in my collection for that purpose. And maybe that bumps it up a couple of places for me too when I'm doing these pub meeple battles. Raiders of the North Sea is a game that sticks out to me and that I'll 
I think I'll keep thinking about it, despite not having a strong desire to continue playing it, because the shape and type of decisions that you make over the course of the game really vary. It's a game of quick decisions on any given turn, and I love the energy that that shuffle, worker shuffle mechanic. Pick one up, place one down, pick one up. Easy. Uh, the, the, it lends the game this sense of huge energy, but there's also really meaningful, momentous decisions in terms of what the raid you're shooting for is and when you're going to invest all of the resources that you've been building up into a raid. Do you want to spend a little bit of extra time preparing, try to squeeze a few more points out of that opportunity? It's a game uh, where every type of decision doesn't feel exactly the same, even though it, the game helps you make them pretty quickly. And I, I really admire that about the design of Raiders of the North Sea. The next game on our list, the number 21 game of the year, is my number seven. And Jake's number 28. Jake is a key hater. The title of this episode was Key Love It or Key Hate It. And Jake, as we covered Key Flower, the game is Key Flower. Uh, Jake is a key hater and he just has to wear the key hater hat. He has to sit with that and realize that maybe in 2022, he'll come around to appreciate that though Keyflower is not a, it's a auction, worker placement, city building, logistics puzzle game with, uh, I would say it's one of the maybe decision spaces that ha is wearing the ugliest sweater. Uh, it just like doesn't have exactly the, the tight, clean, polished edges of many of the games that we covered. But I love it for that. And it's ambitious and it's gnarly and it's fun. And yeah, there's problems with it, but it's it's different and it offers something really neat. and. I mentioned that Carcassonne is a game I might turn down sometimes. I don't think I'd ever turn down an opportunity to play Keyflower, um, though many of my offers to play Keyflower are often turned down. Yeah, it truly is a love it or hate it game, and you're getting both perspectives on this podcast. I think for me, it's just a little bit, it's like one thing too many. And for me, the thing that really just like drives the stake in the heart of my wanting to play this game is the logistics puzzle of once you're doing all the complicated auction system and then you finally are able to get some tiles and add it to your little personal area and then you have to like play with the roads and think ahead to what tiles oh no we have to be, think ahead <laughs> might be offered in the future and the special types of end game scoring things which you're not going to really see until the end and it's it just is like a little too perilous for me mm. to feel good when I'm playing it. There's just so many moments where something happens that makes me feel bad. And hey, that's okay. There's a lot of games that are really tough and cutthroat like that, but there's just something off about like, oh, it's like a Mayflower slash pun game. And there's this cute flower art and like everything that happens in this game is basically gonna be terrible. I don't know, man. Maybe I would give it another try here or there. I really, I really tried for you with this one. But like out of all the games on this list, I think there are only two that I want to play less. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. I'm going to get you a hello, my name is Key Hater name tag for Decisions Bokog whenever that happens. <laughs> that, that's perfect. <laughs> I will wear it proudly on my key hat. <laughs> All right, speaking of being a huge hater that a lot of people will disagree with, <laughs> let's move on to our next game. Grand Austria Hotel is coming in number 20. So, hey, we made it to the top 20. This one, I gave a 9. So a top 10 game for me that we covered this year. And Brendan, the Austria hater. Yeah, that's right. The whole entire country. It gave it a 24. 
five. Yeah, so I wish I was in Budapest. Pretty, that's pretty pretty low, sir. So Grand Austria Hotel is a really great Euro efficiency type of game. A point salad, absolutely ticking a ton of boxes for me where you will be recruiting guests into your hotel. You will be giving those guests coffee. You'll be giving them wine. You will be giving them food stuff. You will be taking them to their rooms. And when you complete room blocks, you will be getting bonuses and you will have staff that you can pay that can give you end game scoring conditions. And all the tile, you will be looking at signposts that tell you uh, bigger end game scoring conditions, as well as bonuses that you can get from the, what's it called? The royalty track or, or something like that. And it is a ton of point salad euroy goodness and very much unlike Keyflower, everything plays off of each other in a super satisfying way that comes together to create a sum that is greater than its individual parts. <sighs> okay, in Keyflower, you create your own demands and then you fulfill them or fail. In Grand Austria Hotel, you're trying to please the demands of this stupid emperor bust. Why, if he, why am I, it's a bust. Why, why like, is, it, is he a real emperor? Am I trying to please the emperor that existed 30 years ago? I don't even know. Okay, the decisions in this game are fine. It's like a cube pusher, the, the dice mechanic is actually awesome, but I think it's a little bit too much famine for me. And I love the hotel, but it's like four games smashed together. And it's not, I didn't need it to be. I just, I I, I don't know. This one is, I'll go back to it. It's a game that a lot of people love. Um, But for me, I just found a few of the little design elements lacking, especially with timing. It's just like, I don't know. I don't know, Jake. Let's get to the forest with our number 19 game of 2021 and that game was my number eight game and jake's 24 game you're gonna see a trend here jake taking some of my games uh fox in the forest was a game i gave a 10 on the podcast this year it's a two-player trick-taking game in which you never know if you're trying to win or lose tricks uh the the game of the game is trying to judge out if your hand is such that you can Uh, basically win the right amount of tricks or not win any at all. And I love that puzzle. It's a game that I think rewards repeat play and one that I had more fun the more I played it, which for me is the mark of a decision space that I'm going to return to time and time again. And for me, it was the exact opposite. I love this game. The first dozen plays I played it uh, exclusively, or not exclusively, I played it primarily with my wife, Bridget, and we had such a great time and we went back and forth and Bridget was winning the majority of our early plays. And then something happened where I somehow began to understand the puzzle a little better than her. And I just started winning every single time. And it just absolutely killed the game for us. And I think that is my biggest criticism with this game. Uh, for, for a two-player game, you're probably primarily going to be playing with one gaming partner in, in most households. I think that it's hard to maintain a balance that's going to keep everyone happy. And there's just not enough randomness in it to prevent a lopsided meta from creating lopsided results. I love that about the decision space. And I, I think the criticism is really fair, but it's really interesting to watch how the comment of the, a card game, they're not being that much randomness because the game is trying to figure out what you do with the random hand that you're dealt, which sets it apart so much from so many of the other games that we cover this year, because um, it's a game about figuring out how your random, what you do with that random pile. 
Absolutely. And even though I gave it a lower rating, I still it's still one I'll recommend to couples. And somebody's yeah. like, what's a good two-player game? It's definitely on my list, especially if I know they've played trick-taking games before. I hope we have the shields of the interdecisional spaceship. Like, they better be, Chris. They better <laughs> be good. Up. Shields, shields up. up. Yep. <laughs> all right, we're moving on to our number 18th best game of all time, Race for the Galaxy. I gave it 11. So that's a pretty good rating. Wow. Brendan, what did you give it? <laughs> throwing me out of the space. Okay. I, I gave Race for the Galaxy a 21. Um, the, I, I, you go first. You go first. Okay. Race for the Galaxy is a super fun game. It's like a lead, lead follow tableau builder. We don't hate tableau builders, although I guess <laughs> compared to others, we might still kind of hate it. It's a tableau builder uh, that just has, it's all built around these multi-use cards. It is really fun, I think, in that it allows you to set your own path that you're charting through the game, trying to get the most points at the end of a very brief experience. I love the interaction that this game affords where I mentioned you have the lead and follow mechanism. So if I choose produce, that means everyone has to produce at this time. Plus whoever selected it gets a bonus. So it's super rewards thinking ahead, predicting what your opponents are going to do uh, and, and setting yourself up to be able to take advantage of that. And that's like one of my very favorite things that exists in games. It's actually one of the ones that's kind of grown on me after we recorded it, and I've continued to play it more and learn more about it and started to find sort of my niche and what I, what I think is fun. And I'm still excited to dive into the expansions for this game, which I think can add a lot. And I'm wondering even if it's one that we'll cover in the future uh, with expansions included on this very podcast. Yeah, I and I suspect we will. Race for the Galaxy is an absolute classic. And I actually, in reflecting on Race for the Galaxy, I love the structure of turns in Race for the Galaxy. I love the way that it shapes the decision space. That it's a, it ultimately is this uh, engine building efficiency puzzle, but is built around this mechanic where the way to gain an edge is to outthink your opponents to some extent. I love that. I don't love how important it is to know i don't know to play the the cards you're dealt specifically at the beginning and know which direction to go and how perilous it can be the the core mechanic of card sifting this idea that cards are multi-use that you're trading cards for more cards cards can be goods that you're selling those goods to draw a bunch more cards you're getting these influxes i think it's a game that i i wish had a little bit more flexibility in its decision space um a lot of the criticism, and I think fairly of that is, uh, it's a quick card game, just play it again. Sure, that's fine. Uh, Race for the Galaxy, my number 21 decision space of the year. Jake's 11 and our combined 18. But this next one, our number 17. Ooh, boy. <laughs> Interdecisional spaceship set for the 1950s. I don't know that I want to go back, but if you're going to welcome me to the 1950s with a decision space like Welcome to the game that is 17 on our list. I'll be happy to be there. Ben Watts Herpin, an amazing game design. I think Welcome To is a roll and write game in which you are building suburbs. Uh, in the 1950s, It's a, cards are being flipped each turn to give you a power and a number. Uh, so you are picking these random pairings of these values that you're filling into these three different roads. We always have to slot numbers in in an ascending order. So there's this amazing sense of tension as the decision space wanes and wanes and wanes and if you ever find yourself in a position that is downright awful you know that you did it to yourself and i love that about 
welcome to. I think it's really fun and it offers something a little bit different each time while allowing you to sort of grind away at a similar puzzle and feel like you're really improving. And that's what I love about Welcome To. Jake's 25th game and my sixth game. Yeah, I like it also. I think my rating has more to do with the fact that there are just other uh, roll and write games that I own that I pull out way quicker than Welcome To. I think it's just a little too much complexity for the decisions that are actually in there. But absolutely an amazing design and if you want and i was like shocked in the episode i remember when we recorded to learn about sort of the math behind mm. this game to create the engine that works so well like essentially creating dice out of cards incredible stuff by um, mr benoit turpin but at the end of the day i think i'd rather just roll some dice <laughs> <laughs> okay okay fair enough moving on to number 16 it is, hey, that's my fish. This is Brendan's 17th best game. And this is my number 14th best game that we covered this year. It was actually, I was surprised to find my most played game of the year. I think I played it 43 times when I went back through all the Yukata records, which speaks really highly of this game. I think it's just such a dead simple puzzle. It's basically what checkers should be. Everyone should mm. just play this game instead of checkers because it's that simple, but the decisions are really interesting, really rich. You have games of chicken. You're playing game theory with your opponent. You know, if I move here, I'm baiting you to go there. So you just are inching one space closer to each other all the time until somebody finally strikes. It's a fantastic experience that I highly, highly recommend you check out on the online implementation on yukata if i had one criticism for this game is that when i play it in person i wish i was playing on yukata because it's so annoying to set up hey that's my fish if you've never played it the setup of the game is this you make a board of these little hexagons uh, and that's at least the version of the game that both jake and i own physically and putting all those hexagons out it takes some time just getting them laid out on the table it's finicky and the game as you play, you it's really simple. Pick up a penguin, move it in any direction in a straight line, and pick up the tile you move from. You're trying to collect these fish, and the board falls away beneath your fit, feet as you pick up the tiles that you're on. I really enjoy Hey, That's My Fish. And I think this is an interesting game for the podcast because Jake and I were really enjoying playing Hey, That's My Fish. We sort of said, do we think we could do a whole episode of Hey, That's My Fish? <laughs> we, we really like this decision space, but is there enough meat on these penguins? Um and we said, oh, what the heck? Let's just try to do it. And I think that was a turning point for the show overall. And that we realized that the way in which we approached thinking about the decisions didn't just have to be unpacking mechanics, that there was so much more potentially there. And we'd been doing that. Um, but I think it sort of was this little bit of a paradigm shift of there's no decision space too small or too big. Um, and hey, that's my fish is a really good one. Why don't we move on to our next game, which we made sort of the deal with the devil where I got to put Praga above Star Realms and you got to put this game above Hey, That's My Fish. And this is Uwe Rosenberg's Polyamina Ling uh, tile game, Patchwork. Uh, Patchwork, in for me, the most interesting thing about the decision space is the timing puzzle of it and figuring out 
what pieces are the right pieces for the board and the situation that I'm in. It's one that I never feel like I know if I'm making exactly the right decisions. And I think that's what makes it so fun. Uh, and it's cool that it's a decision space built around, for me, the uncertainty of knowing if I'm making the right decisions and seeing if those come to fruition. I think if this was Halloween edition of Patchwork with the better tiles, then it might have been a few places higher for me. Um, no, but, but in all seriousness, I mean, this is a game I really, really enjoyed. It's another one where like the design is so much more than meets the eye. And it was a really fun one to kind of discuss, like, again, the math behind the mechanisms that go into creating this experience. That's like a warm hug. Uh, but then when you realize like the board itself is like minus 144 points that you're starting out with, it kind of gives it a different, it's a game that is just a joy to play every time. So, so one, I think very highly of too. We're definitely in the part of the list where I just really enjoy all these games and including this next one, number 14, Jake, I'll let you do it. All right. So this is the first Steffenfeld game. Reading the Steffenfeld dial. Ding, 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 ding. ding, ding. Uh, So, you know, it got the Jake bump. It is Carpe Diem. Brendan's 23rd best game, my number five game that we covered this year. Carpe Diem is a game that I enjoy more with every subsequent play. So much so that I like wouldn't be surprised if this game over the next year or two even climbs in my rankings of Feld games to the tier of some of the games we'll cover a little bit later or above. That is how highly I think of this design. It is a tile placement game where you are moving a worker around a little rondelle to claim tiles, add them to a personal board that has scoring objectives around it. But the thing that really makes this game sing is a shared, uh, forum that has scoring conditions that you will score four times in the game you'll place a scoring marker between two of the scoring conditions and you'll have to pay the cost or take a penalty and that creates such a rich decision space that forces you both to pay excruciatingly close attention to what every single person is doing around the table and also plan ahead so it's just like this perfect marriage of strategy tactics with a rules overhead that really isn't that bad and the new addition of this game isn't even that ugly yeah i carpe diem the episode title was something along the lines of steffenfeld's masochistic painland uh something along i think that's just literally the episode title it was the second episode we did and i think I have come to appreciate Carpe Diem and its decision space more and more. The form mechanic and the end game scoring is aggravating and fun and good in all the ways. Our next game, number 13, the first Richard Garfield game, I think that is, and that is Magic the Gathering, my number nine game and Jake's number 18. Uh, Jake and I felt like covering Magic the Gathering's decision space on our show might be a little bit masochistic as well, actually. How do you do that? How do you cover this game that is so massive? Uh, and I think the answer for me, uh, this is a game Jake and I both played when we were very young, was I was going to return and try to play it differently. So I spent a lot of time drafting Magic the Gathering, especially the Kaldheim set, North Mythology, that came out earlier this year. And I just loved the decisions that especially Draft and Limited of Magic the Gathering offered. And I think it's a game that is constantly evolving that really sets it apart as a decision space on this list uh, that gets to be as a game something ever evolving. And that's so cool. Yeah, absolutely a formative game for me. It's a genre of dueling card game that I really love and get a lot out of. But it does have a fatal flaw for me 
even today, even with the innovation, which is that there are just too many non-games based on randomness that I just don't feel like is fair to give Magic the Gathering a pass on when we would never accept it from a, a game that came out in 2021 or even 2010. And and so I think that is the only thing that draws it down for me is just the fact that you can just not draw lands or not draw anything other than lands and just you don't get to play the game at all. Having said that, I still did a couple of in-person magic drafts with friends this year, had a great time, had some amount of fun playing on the app. Uh, it's, I think it's a game that will always be a part of my life in some ways. And, and you know, I'll never turn down an invitation to a magic draft. Well, I'm going to reach not for the Seffenfeld bell, but the Runo Cathala gong as we slide into his first game of Seven Wonders Duel. This is Jake and I's number 12 game of the year. And I think this is a decision space that I love for how fraught with tension it is. A lot of people say that there's forced decisions in this game and they, they think that the decisions it offers can be frustrating in that it's a game where you end up in a corner that the game plays you. And I think that that's wrong. I think it showed me that the decision space of games can be disjointed and the way in which the decisions you make can lead to you being forced to make decisions is interesting and challenging and fun and knowing when you can risk certain things and why you should risk certain lines through the decision space is the fun of the game. I love the unique player tiles that the progress tokens add, the powers that are unique to this game, and I like how quick it plays at a, as two players. This is a game that I grew on my in my estimation of over the course of preparing for the show. Uh, it, it was one I had some familiarity with prior, uh, and I thought it was a good game, but playing it more, playing it with you, and realizing like how much those alternate victory conditions come into play mm-hmm. i just think that's so cool like that you have an actual two-player game that has three actual viable end game scoring conditions i get the criticism that if you don't get to the natural end of the game it feels like oh well all that was wasted but really you know in almost all cases you're still a turn or two away and it's it's the the joy of crafting the game state to get to one of those conditions or not or preventing it so that you can win with the default way is infinitely fun and immensely pleasurable to exist in that kind of decision space for me. So I think well-deserving of our 12th place game for this year, but not as deserving as our 11th best game of the year. Uh, This one was brand new to me when we covered it for the show And maybe I'm getting a little bit earning back into Paul's good graces just a little bit with this ranking of Emotep, your 16th best game of the year and my number 10. Emotep is a game of moving stone blocks onto boats and then shipping the boats to various scoring sites. I think we called it the perfectly poached egg on our episode mm-hmm. in that it's just like a very simple, simple, simple idea, but done incredibly well. It's a game that gets a lot of flack for being too procedural and each decision not really mattering that much in that, you know, you're going to get one point by doing this or two points for doing this other thing, or possibly you could earn like up to three or four points at most. And that was something that I was really critical of Kingdom Builder for being. But I think Emotep 
differentiates itself because the thought process behind making each of those choices is genuinely fun and engaging to work through. And I think the fact that the actual difference in outcome is so slight makes it really work for all types of people, right? You can play this at family game night and everybody's going to have fun. Uh, or, you know, you could really dive deep with serious gamers who are, are really trying to math out, really trying to manipulate the game state into their advantage and have an intense and intensely fun strategic experience. Definitely. Emotep a game where you're trying to do the most to get the most out of your opponent's actions uh, while basically making everyone else do your homework. And I, I think it's a, a really fun decision space. There's some cool power cards that add some texture to it. Uh, and it's a game that we both and also Joe in our Discord expect ended up loving way more than we thought we did. Uh, boat control is the end of what I have to say about that. And you can't forget about big rocks. Big rock. Invested big rock. Okay. So, Jake, momentous moment here. Top 10. Yes. So this one is our biggest difference between games. Second biggest. The second biggest. Keyflower was technically was the our largest. Yeah. Okay. So the biggest in the top 10. And this is, I'm getting my uh, Catholicong again, a uh, Bruno Catholic game. This Dong. one <laughs> with Charles Chevalier. And that game uh, is Kanagawa. Kanagawa is a tableau building. See, it's a tableau building game in which players are drafting cards in this sort of face up draft where they're trying to decide how important it is to get more cards versus waiting to select cards. And then there's also my favorite thing about the decision space is that you're all going after these shared goals in which when you achieve a goal, you have to decide if you want to select a given goal or pursue a little bit further down that path and wait for a harder one uh, that will be more rewarding to you, but knowing that you'll never be able to go back and claim the easier one. Or if you had claimed the easier one, you'll never be able to claim the more rewarding, difficult goal in that line. So that tension for me is so fun. This is a game that gives and gives. And I think this is one that surprised me how high it ended up being on my list. This is my number two game. That's um, pretty high. It's very high. And it didn't surprise me. I knew it was going to be top 10, but I didn't know it would be quite this high. And I think part of that is, is just that Kanagawa is a game I'm always happy to play. I think it's incredibly relaxing. It offers interesting decisions. And I love the way that the board comes together. You're juggling a lot of different elements in terms of what you're set collecting. Uh, and it's a game that I think deserves more love than it gets. In our episode, it was our very first episode. So if you want to kind of get back to the roots when we were trying to find our footing still, you can check that out. I have almost nothing negative to say about this game. But the reason it's so much lower for me than you, I think, this is my number 21 game, is that it just is a game that, unlike something like Raiders of the North Sea, which has this like perfect sweet spot in my collection for like moments I want to bring it out, I think Kanagawa is like just missing a sweet spot for me in that mm. it's a little bit too complicated to bring out when I want something that's like like simple, gateway level there's just a two little a few little small rules things that are just a little bit hard to wrap your head around and i feel like when i would go up to something like kanagawa in terms of complexity uh there are just other games that i feel like for just a little tiny bit more buy-in you can have i can have like a more satisfying strategic experience for me so i think if i had like a dedicated partner who i really love playing it with it might be higher for me but i think that's kind of why I, I 
had it lose as many of my pub meeple rankings as it did. I think that's totally fair. But with that said, everyone who has not played this game or everyone who rated it lowly in your own community rankings, I think you should go back and take another look at Kanagawa, a game with some clever ideas and systems. For our number nine game of the year, it is Steffenbell. Steffenfeld. Ding! Sorry, I was getting ahead for the Steffenfeld bell. Thank you very <laughs> much. And it is Bruges, your number 19 game of the year and my number four. So actually kind of lower than I expected going this list since I think it was my number one game when we did our top 10 list, number one game of all time. But I had it at four. This is a, you know, another one of those point salad Euro efficiency game. It has a great dice mechanism for uh, randomness that you have to uh, constantly think about risk mitigation for, uh, both in terms of risk of threat to you, but also mitigating your your opportunity to take advantage of those dice to get the gold you need. Uh, It also has just like a wonderful multi-use card mechanism um, so that you're never at want for choices on your turn. It's very much plays in the same space in terms of decision space as a game like Castles of Burgundy, but where Castles of Burgundy is tightly restrained uh, in, in type in terms of the total outcome for your game, Bruges is a little bit more loose. You can play games of Bruges that are absolutely incredible. You're hitting every tempo note just on pace and pushing the game, uh, scoring buckets of points, or you could be just like not quite getting the cards and dice roll you need at the time, and you're going to have a really difficult time, if not impossible time, being successful. That said, unlike a non-game in something like Magic the Gathering, even when you're having a bad game, you're still making decisions. You still have the ability to, to make the most of what you've been given. And I think it's just a wonderful game that I'd highly, highly recommend everybody check out if you have not. It is available to play for free on yukata.de. And uh, if, if you check out there, you'll probably find me. <laughs> Look, Bruges is a phenomenal game. I totally understand why... It's sort of a cult classic, and I think not just among Steffenfeld fans, but just in the board game community in general. It's a game that I constantly hear discussed, and it's it's cool. The dice mechanic is, is lovely, and it's a game that no matter how many times you play it, the decision space is going to feel different because of the multi-use cards and because of the dice mechanic that drives all of the decisions in the game uh, as you sort of filter your multi-use cards through this other randomizing element in a way that Feld is so comfortable with. And it's, I think, a phenomenal design uh, that everyone should check out. That's Stefan Feld's Bruges, our number nine game of 2021. Our number eight game of 2021 is Underwater Cities, a absolutely wonderful, wonderful, wonderful game by Vladimir Sushi. It is Brendan's number 15 game and my number eight game. So a top 15, top half game for both of us. Um, This game has perhaps one of the coolest mechanisms of any that I've covered uh, this year. I think that the card mechanism where you're, it's, you know, instead of action placement, it's card placement. So you have cards of three different colors and action spots of three different colors. And you want to match up the card color with the action spot to get both bonuses is like such a fun tactical puzzle, as well as the overall strategic puzzle of trying to navigate through the three production phases and and build up 
a tableau of cards. Hey, how about that? All right, we do we like them. Hate. We do. We like them. We like some of them. Um, you know, it's of of all the games we've covered this year, it might be the heaviest or among the heaviest heaviest of all the games. But that like weight and complexity absolutely pays off in interesting decisions. I love Underwater Cities. Uh, I second your comment about the card mechanism, Jake, which I think is just brilliant. It's so much fun getting a bonus if you link them up, but it's also so fun making the decision to buck the mechanic and place a card into a, a color slot that isn't right because it's the right action at the time and you just didn't have any other choice. Um, and I think that it's very skill rewarding. If there's games on our list this year that we felt didn't ask enough of us. I think Underwater Cities is an example of a game that asks a lot of its players, but it gives a lot back. Uh, the engine building is great. It's so fun watching all of the work as you go into production phase, just watching your tiles build up. And I think the criticism of Underwater Cities playing long is fair, but the more that I played it, the more it's a game that I am happy to return to again and again. I love the decisions on the board trying to figure out if I should build my underwater city out towards uh, this city or that city uh, that would give me more rewards at the sort of the terminal locations uh, as sort of endgame scoring and knowing what the, the path I should take given the cards that I have. This is Suchi in my mind at his best and it's our number eight game of 2021. But the next game, uh, Shields Down. This is a game that I know everyone is going to be excited. We're going to get a lot of other interdecisional spacecrafts flying in to accompany us back into Spirit Island. Spirit Island is a demanding cooperative game in which players each take on the role of a spirit defending an island against colonial invaders. It is punishing, it is tight, it is fun, and it has this incredible sense of growth and momentum as you at first are trying to figure out everything you can do to just last, just stick on the board as your power grows and grows. Uh, and if you're successful, you are rewarded by making good decisions early on with becoming incredibly powerful and getting to deliver haymaker gut punches to your, to your computer AI, not computer, your AI cardboard opponent. Uh, in terms of the colonist. And it's just great. Every time you play Spirit Island, it's a slightly different decision space. And each of them offer fascinating, rewarding decision space. And that's why it's my number seven, or seven game. It's funny how much on a game that is explicitly about the decisions in games, the thing that sticks out the most to me about Spirit Island is that it's just an absolute triumph of theme. Mm. And you know, even even though you know we're we're on the the mechanism side of the spectrum for I think what we probably find the most joy in in games, what we come to games for, that doesn't mean we don't also get a lot of value out of the theme. And Spear Island absolutely knocks it out of the park. It makes it so much fun to try out the different spirits, read their backstories, and. Please don't hear what I'm not saying because I'm not selling this short in terms of decisions. It is a robust decision offered as well. But if this was a game about, I don't know, something something else, some other theme, would it be this highly regarded or by us or the community at whole? I don't think so. So, you know, we care about theme too. We love Spirit Island. It's a huge, huge winner for us. And one of my very favorite solo games of all time, we should say too. Um, so if that's something that you care about or are interesting, interested in exploring in the new year, 
it doesn't get much better than Spirit Island. Yep. And I think that's such a great point, Jake. And I talked about how Hey, That's My Fish was a little bit of a breakthrough. We did our episode on theme right around Spirit Island. And you're so right that we have to consider theme in terms of decisions because they impact how decisions feel. And that's part of what makes games so fun is unpacking how those decisions make us feel. And and yeah, I we're going from a really heavy game, though. We're going to slide on down to a very light game that I would argue, though, has a, a very large and interesting decision space. And that game, oh, wait, get the gong out. Brutacathal is back. Dong. And that's King Domino. This is our number six game that we covered in 2021. It's my number More four like- game. King Gongano. We didn't even plan that, which is to our credit because it could have been better. But this is number 12 game. King Domino is a simple tile laying drafting game with, I think, one of the best simple drafting components I've seen. Uh, Maybe alongside the game we're going to cover next, but I just love King Domino at at two players. I think this game shines in the two player mighty dual variant. It's it, it loses something for me at three and four players so much so that I'm happy to play it, but I, I don't want to. I want to play it at two. I want to put on my my Feld monocle, my try hard hat, and I want to get in and I want to make some really hard, really rewarding decisions with the spatial puzzle. Uh, it's a game that gets better the more you play it, a game that rewards you as you learn to place tiles better, as you learn the tile set. And it's a game where I feel like I could play it for years and still have room to grow, which says a lot for a game this small. This might be for me the most, the biggest surprise on my list to see how high this made it up for me, because it is definitely a game I like, a game I appreciate, but. I mean, calling it the 12th best game out of all the games we've covered this year, I think speaks volumes to just those comparisons of like how much game King Domino offers at, you know, such an economy of rules. You can play with anyone, you can teach it in five minutes, and it just kicks ass. Yeah, amazing game. Bruno Cathala, how are you so good? Uh, This is an applause for... Bruno Cathala because we're done with covering Cathala games, but there'll be more in 2022. The next game on our list, Jake gets to do because I rated it at 13 and he rated it three. I'm going to backpedal and sit down in my chair in the bridge. Because it is time for our top five games of the year. The creme de la creme, the best of the best. And we're starting out with a good one, a really, really good one. It is Another simple game, perhaps the king of the simple games, the king of the gateway games, the best there is if you want to buy a gift for somebody who you think might like a game to play with their partner, but also they could break out at family game night. And I just think this is a classic that will be played at family game night for decades to come. That's how highly I think of Azul by Michael Kiesling, a classic in our hobby. Azul offers such rewarding decisions. Uh, and it is, I think, one of the best examples of a game that the design elevates the decisions and specifically tailors them to help you feel smart and experience uh, the experience of fun playing as well only increases the more you play it, both in each game and as you go, in a way that makes it operate on so many different levels. Azul, uh, your Azul is just good. Azul is just so much of designing board games is about sort of saying this is an example of a game that ought to exist. And Azul is just so much exactly that in a way that I think more so than almost any game on this list. It's like, wow, yes, this game needed to exist and it is good. And we didn't even talk about the momentum 
inside a single game on our episode where you're getting more points towards the end, which is fantastic. It makes you feel like you're always in it. We didn't talk about how uh, on the A side of the board, different tiles might actually have slightly different values. There's just so much to dissect and think about in this game for a game that is like, it's, you know, it might take some getting over the initial play hurdle for a new player, but really you could play this with anyone. Really, this game is that simple and it, it offers so, so much. So just that that value that you get in this game for the efficiency of rules, uh, the economy of space, it's just a classic and it is one I'll be playing forever, I think, I hope. Put the starburst down. Get ready to pick up the dice and here's another felled bell. If, if, we, if we had to knock off Azul with our number four game of all time, I'm glad we did it with this one, The Castles of Burgundy, the final Feld game on this list, and Brendan's number 12 game that we covered this year, and my number one. So while I did not give this the nod as my number one game of all time, it became pretty clear to me when I was clicking through the Pub Meeple ranking that every time Castles of Burgundy came up, it was a no-brainer. So I think... As of now, I'm putting Castles of Burgundy back on top, my number one game of all time, where truly it should have been all along, if I'm being honest with myself. This is just a perfect game. It's the quintessential point salad Euro game. You have an amazing, amazing uh, dice mechanism that keeps keeps you guessing, keeps you thinking, keeps you planning, makes you do risk assessments over the course of the game. So you're doing the tactics, you're doing the strategy. There's enough randomness to make things different, but you're not going to have a bad game of this uh, really, really ever, assuming everybody's playing with a good clip. I think that's the only criticism that can really fairly be mustered of this game. Uh, outside of, I guess, you know, kind of a bland theme is that it can go a little long with four players at times, but I'm always having fun. I'm always having a good time because there's enough to think about on each turn to keep you engaged, even if it's taking a little bit of time to go around the table. But the thing I like most about this game is something I didn't even know existed before we started the journey on this podcast, which is it's the type of decision space. I've learned it is one of my favorite things that a game can have, which is a waning decision space that is punctuated with infused elements of randomness. Uh, So this punctuated waning decision space, this is the best example of it that exists alongside Azul, which we talked about in the last episode. It just offers so much drama, excitement, engagement throughout the course of the game that it's, it's my favorite type of decision space to have, and this is the best version of it. The Castles of Burgundy offers such fun decisions. It is so awesome every turn, getting to see what you can do with the dice that you've rolled. Uh, the permutations offer a bit of challenge as you sort of suss out and judge out what might work best for you in the given situation. The way the worker tiles allow you to manipulate your dice increase the decision space to a size that lends you some control, adds a ton of choices without sort of filtering the decisions, uh, without making the decisions feel cumbersome. And I think that's an aspect of the Castles of Burgundy that I really love. Um, It is a game that, I don't know, like Jake said, the decision space is just so fun. I love the momentum and I think also the, the way in which it asks you to prioritize what you're doing and to think through what the best 
decisions given the the position you've been put in by your dice, but knowing that your dice haven't hampered you, it's just offered you a different path and it's your path. And the game equips you with all the tools you need to always be, if you're the most skilled player at the table, to make it the furthest down that path. And I think that's so cool and a testament to why Feld games are so interesting, why their decision spaces are so rewarding, and why the Castles of Burgundy is one of the best games of all time. I'll give you this next one as you have it ranked higher than me, but we should say this is now into our top three. And these are the only three games on this list, go figure, that we both have ranked inside our top 10. So truly, these are, for us, the best three decision spaces of 2021. This number three game is Richard Garfield's Keyforge. Uh, Keyforge is a fascinating game in which every single deck that has ever been made is different. It is a dual game similar to Magic the Gathering in which you will pilot your deck of three houses, uh, a random collection of cards truly unique to you uh, against your opponent to try to forge three keys. The decisions that it offers with its house uh, mechanism, you're going to choose a house on a given turn. You play any cards of that house in your hand and use any cards of that house on the table, and then you're going to replenish your hand at the end of the turn, is one of the most rewarding core turn mechanics in a decision uh, from a decision space perspective in a game I've ever played. I love Keyforge. Uh, Keyforge, like long live Keyforge. It's a game that everyone should play. Um, and if you've never tried Keyforge, I think it works excellently at a casual level and at a competitive level. It's a game that Jake and I both have a ton of history with. Uh, and I love that it's a game that I'm thinking about when I'm playing it, when I'm not playing it. Uh, and it's a game that I want Euro games and I want modern games and I want all games to learn lessons from. Because there's so many lessons about how to allow players to take control of a decision space of a game and reward them for it without sort of shoving that down their throats and let them doing it at their own pace with that house uh, selection system. Yeah, I think it's one of the most exciting releases since I've been invested in the board game hobby, which is about seven years now, um, just because of what it does with an algorithm, right? Mm. Using advances in what we can do with algorithm and combined with one of the greatest designers of all time uh, is exciting. And I think it kind of points away to what can be successful with games in the future to show us things that we've never seen before. I my plays of Keyforge have fallen off a lot this year with the you know, ongoing pandemic. I haven't been playing tournaments or, or playing in person really much at all outside of uh, one game night I hosted where we tried out the newest set. But it's still fun. I've been when I do play online, I played in a couple of like online leagues where I'd have like a weekly match. I always walked away from the game just thinking like this game really does hold up. It really is that good. It's a game that a lot of people bounce off, I think, because of that first play. It can feel random. That's how I felt when I first played it. And that's valid. And a lot of people say, well, I want to have a good experience right off the bat. I'm not interested in playing something five or six times to start getting the experience. And that's totally okay. But if you do invest the time, you will be rewarded for it with Keyforge. I think that same thing actually applies to the number two game on Jake and I's list. It's a game that Jake and I were hesitant to cover on the show from the outset, and it's a polarizing game, I think, in terms of releases from the past couple of years. In my opinion, it's because it's a game that gets better the more you play it. And that game is The Lost Ruins of Arnak. This is a worker placement uh, 
deck building language using game though i and jake both argue it's not really a deck building game just uses the language of deck building to create this really novel action selection mechanism and it it, like i said I, i think arnak is so fascinating because it's constrained it's it's a tight small decision space that's different every time uh, i guess it's not small but it it feels like there's these these bumpers on it but it feels at the same time as you have those bumpers and these really specific things that you're trying to accomplish and move through that you're always doing it differently and you're pushing back on it in really interesting ways um the more i play it the more i've enjoyed it it's one of my most played games on this list of the year and I really admire the Lost Ruins of Arnak and its design. Yeah, this has been the game that has grown on me the most since we covered it. I, I can't remember what I gave it on the show, but maybe something like a 7 or a 7.5, a good but not great game. And I now fully believe it's a great game. This was Brendan's number three game of the year. It was my number seven. Um, and I think the biggest difference from where I'm at with Lost Rooms of Arnak now after playing it probably 20 more times since we covered it on the show. Well, for one, I didn't know that I would want to play it 20 more mm, times. Yeah. I thought that this was a game that how, that the experience was pretty much on rails. And so I would feel like once I'd had the experience enough, I would be done with it. But that just hasn't been the case. And I think that I'm learning that what I thought was a potential weakness of the game is actually a strength of the game. Every single time I sit down and play Lost Ruins of Arnak, I get into a completely new situation that I've ever been in before. Through combination of the way the board is laid out, the types of items I'm able to get into my deck early or or artifacts, uh, the different types of guardians that come out. Like each of those things fundamentally impacts the game in such a significant way, a much more significant way than I expected uh, after playing it just 10 times that I think that this game, even without expansions, is a game that can easily hold up to 100 plays. Um, And, you know, as fun and just just fun, right? Like it's just plain fun. Everything you're doing in the game is fun. To have that, just the simple fun of it, combined with the longevity that it has. I think this is a really, really special release. And obviously it's been on the hotness basically since it's come out, it's shooting up the BGG top 100. So we're not alone in in thinking that, but I you know, have gone from being like, wow, that's kind of crazy to being like, I, I can completely agree, like to the moon, send it up. Yeah, you know, Arnak, for me, the thing that has stuck with me too so much is how it really is a game that re- that rewards you for playing it more. Uh, Coming to understand how the different cards work, the strategies that you can go for when you get certain cards in certain rounds with certain assistance is so cool. Uh, And it might be the only time you ever play the game making those decisions and taking that path through its decision space. And I think that that's really fun. Um, So super deserving, Lost Ruins of Arnak, here's to many more plays. And Jake, why don't you do the number one game for you and I that we covered in 2021. Far in a way, our consensus number one game. It was Brendan's number one and my number two at the end of our pub meeple rankings. And that is the only game left, El Grande. I think it's amazing. And I absolutely love every single thing about this game, starting with the brilliant auction mechanism for turn order that has just this beautiful trade-off for when you get to go in the turn and sort of what your capacity will be to do things once you've taken that turn by the supply of actual troops, copy arrows that you can put out on the board. Um, It is 
just a spectacular game that absolutely holds up, you know, however many years on since it's released. It is a classic, uh, but it has exciting moments, tactics, and strategy uh, to create perhaps like the most robust or among the most robust decision spaces that we've played all year. And I think the thing that makes it just like a game that assuming you can find a copy that absolutely deserves a spot in every single person's collection is there's no game in the world that I would rather play if I had five players wanting to sit down and play a strategy game. It is like a clear consensus number one. Yeah, El Grande is just incredible. I think for me, the thing about El Grande and its decision space that makes it so good is it brings together so many different types of little games that you're playing. It brings the the simultaneous choice when you're using those dials to select where you're going to put your caballeros that have gone into the Castillo. It has that little sort of, Jake was talking about, hand management auction game where you're rewarding, trying to play between putting your workers first versus pulling more uh, troops in. The powers of the cards and how that textures onto all of it. El Grande is a game that I would never turn down a play of and I think offers in its decision space something that is has a little something for everyone and somehow doesn't alienate very many types of, of game players. It's a game that is so fun and it's one that i want to return to time and time and time again that's why it's our number one game of 2021 so there you have it we we threatened it and we've come through ranking every single game we played this year from number 30 to number one but we aren't done yet as promised we have to share our community ranked top 10 games to see how it aligns with ours and and perhaps how it disagrees. So we'll share just the top 10 here, but we will share the entire list in a blog post to accompany this episode on BoardGameGeek and potentially Reddit as well. So I just want to say thank you so much to everyone who participated in putting these rankings together. Uh, who submitted your thoughts on the games that we played in 2021. We would love to hear what games you want to hear us play in 2022. So definitely join our Discord and let us know. You can find the the link in our show notes. And without further ado, I think that's rapid fire these, Jake. Uh, So number 10 is going to be Seven Wonders Duel. Number nine community ranked game, King Domino. Number eight, Keyforge Call of the Archons. That's a surprise for me. I'm surprised to see it that high. I thought we were kind of on an island with that, but... It's good to know that uh, so many other people also appreciate this game. We should say there have been 33 people have ranked this so far. So it's not like we've just had our two lists and and one or two others. We had some pretty good response. So thank you so much for participating. Likewise. Number seven, Terraforming Mars. Number six, Underwater Cities. And now off to Jake. Number five, Azul. That's a crossover with our list. Number four, The Castles of Burgundy. Also a crossover with our list. Number three, El Grande, these people have good taste, Brendan. Number two, Spirit Island. And I'm actually pretty excited to see our number one list. And it is number one by a pretty clear margin. And that is Race for the Galaxy, our community's number one decision space game of the year. And I think well-deserved. A sign that we need to return to it. And put some more time into those expansions and I think get more episodes focused on the decision space of Race for the Galaxy out there. Y'all have such good taste in games. I think this top 10 is so reflective of, I think, the strength of the decision spaces here. And I'm not surprised in games like Spirit Island, El Grande, and the Castles of Burgundy up here. 
Jake, the decisions that spaces we've explored here in 2021 have been so incredible. I've been so thankful to sit on this bridge with you and sort of reflect back on 2021. And we didn't even get to talk about all the decision things we discuss in our What We Talk About episodes and topical shows. And I'm just so thankful for this year of games with you and so excited for what the future holds. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Decision Space. We appreciate you sticking with us this long. If you want to continue the conversation, we are always online chatting in our Discord. You can find a link to that in the description of this podcast. We are also on Twitter at Decision Spa. That's Decision S-P-A. My personal Twitter is Jake Freed, J-A-K-E-F-R-Y-D, and Brendan's is Burnside. B-H. We also have an email for the show if you want to reach us there. That's decisionspa at gmail.com. If you want to help us grow this show, please share this out with your friends. We think this would be a great entry point and we would love to grow our audience. Thanks again for a wonderful year of Decision Space. We'd like to thank Hembry for allowing us to use their song Reach Out for our intro and outro music. This interdecisional spaceship flight is now approaching its destination. Thank you for joining us here in the decision space. We do hope you enjoy the rest of your game. Oh,